And now let me read to you verses 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The last two weeks we were looking at Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. We'll continue to go forward and look at verses 4 and 5 here. And the thing that we've taken note of and we'll underscore again this morning is that everybody is a moralist on some level. Everybody is a moralist. It's the default mode of the way in which we engage humans. It's the default mode in which we live our lives. We're moralists, and the essence of our moralism is that we seek to promote a moral status in ourselves, and we seek to, in a sense, create some distance in our life in our pursuit for a self-salvation. Paul is speaking to the moralist. The moralist who has just read the first words of Paul's letter in Romans chapter 1, and particularly verses 18 through 32, where Paul catalogs the defilement that comes upon the nation and the society because they're totally given over to paganism and because they've totally rejected God. And as Paul says in verse 18, because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because of the sin, Paul says in verse 18 that God's wrath is being revealed against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness against those who suppress the truth and righteousness. Then he gives this description of, you might say, the pathway of decay that comes upon society and the depth of degradation that society finds themselves in. And Paul now is anticipating that individuals are reading that and saying, Paul, you're right. Amen. Brother, preach it. These people are horrible and they're facing your wrath and your judgment. Then Paul turns the tables on them. Be careful what you say amen to. Because now Paul points out to them that their attitude and their mindset and their moralistic self-approval because they don't do those things and they're good people is actually indicting them. They followed some prescribed notion of what it means to be good and righteous and to be set apart from people who are careless and thoughtless and evil and they're better than them. And now Paul is pointing out to us that this is kind of the default mode of everyone. And that there's not an answer in these things. Paul is pulling down this false notion that's within them. There's no salvation, he's telling them, in your moralisms. That your moralisms only demonstrate that you know enough of God's standard of right and wrong to be accountable before him and without excuse. There's no salvation in your moralisms because at some level, you, the moralist, are guilty of breaking the same laws. The very things that you accuse other people of doing, you're sensitive to because, well, you've connived the same path at some level in your own life and you're carrying it out in your own life. And there's no salvation in your moralisms because God is going to judge you not according to the front that you put on, not according to the inflated view of your own moral superiority that you have, but God is going to judge you. And even now is taking notes. He's judging you is the idea here. He's finding out the truth about you. The truth about you. God is going to judge you by truth. 
according to truth. And he knows the absolute truth of your life. He knows the absolute truth of your inner thoughts. He knows the absolute truth of the hidden motivations of your heart. He knows the things that you know about yourself that you try to ignore and the things you don't want anybody else to know about yourself. He knows all of these things. God knows you perfectly. There is no salvation in your moralism as well, he says, because there's no escape from that judgment. You are heading to that time and that period and that moment before you stand before this God who knows you perfectly and knows all your sins and knows that as you've been judging others and approving yourself that you were guilty of the same things. That's the argument he has here. And we're going to press on here a little bit further, but the point here is that everybody on some level is a moralist. In fact, what I want to do for just a moment is I want to just, before we get into the points of the message, I want to think about these ideas. I want to just Keep us at this thought that everyone, at some level, is a moralist. Moralizing is our means of self-justification. It's our attempt to establish ourselves in a form of self-righteousness that allows us to rise up above the level of somebody else who's not quite as righteous as ourselves. I had a friend of our families that we'd known for a number of years. She had ran away from home as a young girl. Her name was Mary. Mary married a young man who wanted to be a rock star and never really arrived. Instead, she spent about 25 years as his roadie, showing up at one bar after another bar after another bar, helping him set up his stage, and then sitting with the crowd at the bar, listening to her husband as he performed. And the time came when she came back to Christ and gave her life to him. And she shared with me, she was actually with me in Russia at the time, that the most judgmental people that I've ever met were in those bars. I sat with them weekly for over 20 years, and invariably, if someone in the group left the table to go to the restroom or to go get another round of drinks, they would begin berating that person behind their backs. She's such a lush. She's such a liar. She is such a floozy, and on and on would go the conversation. Whatever the character flaw was in, whatever the known failure in that person's life was, it became the subject of conversation in their absence. The need to exalt ourselves in contrast to the failures of others, even the exaggerated idea of the failures of others, never seems to go away. This is our hope of salvation for many people, especially true individuals who have not found the life and the righteousness and the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who instead feel that somehow they're going to be saved because they just outpace somebody else. You know, if you're going to be chased by a grizzly bear, just make sure you're faster than one other person, right? And they're just thinking, God's not going to catch me. He's not going to hunt me down because I'm better at least than this person or that person. And you don't think that's in your attitude. Just find out. It's constantly going on. It's constantly spewed out in the conversations you have with people. Talk to your neighbor across the fence. Discuss with them how their week has gone. Let the conversation go on for any period of time. Ask them about the state of the world or the state of their lives. And before long, they'll begin moralizing. They'll begin speaking of others who are not quite measuring up, who are failing them. And what's the instinct behind that? Well, the instinct is this need of self-justification. This need to feel that we're morally outpacing ourselves from somebody else. And ultimately, it's It's designed by us as some way to approve ourselves, to feel that as a result, we will safely reach some place of ultimate transcendence and we'll be saved. This is just within the nature of everyone. It's what's taking place. And interestingly enough, there is 
a bit of logic behind this. A person can look at their lives and say, well, one of the things they say, by the way, is this. Here's what Paul is going to say. You're under judgment. And Paul is anticipating the argument that's going to come in return from the moralist. He'll say, what do you mean that I'm under God's judgment? Do you know how good my life is? Do you know the blessings in my life? Do you know what just happened this week? Do you know how many friends I have? Have you seen how successful my business is? And they'll start adding up all the different benefits in their life. And they'll say, this is evidence that I'm good with God. That God is actually pleased with the route I'm taking and he and I are on, we're on good terms with one another. You, you can't suggest that I'm under God's judgment because my life is paying dividends and I'm experiencing good things. Actually, what they're doing is they're pounding all those good things and they're using that as a part of the argument for why it is that they're going to escape God's judgment. And there's a bit of logic to what they're saying. We're born into a moral world that has moral laws that govern it. If you live according to those moral laws, to any extent, you'll find that when you do, they put you in a favorable position. You know, the Bible says that if you cast the seed to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. And that's true, but it's also conversely true. If when you sow into your life a thoughtfulness of others, an honesty, and integrity, and a consideration, and loyalty, and truthfulness, that over time, those seeds that you plant, just practically, morally, will begin to produce kind of dividends in your life where you'll be more successful in your business and your undertakings and your relationships will go well because God has created a, a world that is governed by moral laws. And so the moralists can say and point to those and say, see, this all worked out well for me. See, I'm doing okay. My life is benefiting because I'm following these things. And that becomes his argument that he's good with God. That's why I'm doing better than that guy is. And that's why my business is successful and his isn't. It's because people don't know. They don't know how to do the right things. But I'm doing the right things in the right places. That's why my life is good. That's the argument the moralist gives. Here's an interesting thing, though. Everybody is a moralist. (laughs) Even at the lowest rung of society, people are moralizing and thinking they're better than somebody else. And here's how that misinterpretation takes place. The Bible also tells us that God is good to everyone. That even when people don't deserve it, God gives good benefits to them. Jesus said that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I said this before, but when I was a boy, I thought that meant that God did bad things to the unrighteous and the righteous both. Because who wants it to rain? You can't play in the rain. But actually, what was being said there was God provides. God gives the field of the righteous man and the unrighteous man the rain that it needs to produce the crop, to provide for the people and provide for himself. God is good to all. God provides benefits and blessings on everyone, including the righteous and the unrighteous man. And as a result, the person, regardless of how they live, because everybody moralizes and everybody thinks they're better than somebody else, has an argument. They can find evidence in their life that their life is surrounded by benefits. They've had good things happen to them. You know, they've had overcome difficulties and hardships and they've experienced common graces in which every single day they have shelter and they've got a roof over their head and they've got relationships that help them and they have energy and they have friendships and they have a feeling of accomplishment and they have opportunities that come their way and one way or another there are some measure of benefits come their life and then every single day in the middle of all these things there's a certain level of order usually in people's lives we of all people know this there's an order in our society that sustains us and it leads to success we can point at all those things and say you see i must be an all right person i must basically be on on a good level with god because look at all the things that are taking place i'm all right with god look at all the good things that he sent my way i'm not under his judgment 
Everything between God and I is all right. See, I'm not such a bad person after all. How could you say that I'm under God's judgment when good things like this are happening to me? That's the moralist answer to the suggestion that his moralizing won't save him, that his pathway to self-justification isn't working. Seems to be working to me, he says. Look at how good my life is, at least in spots and places. Here's Paul's answer. Let's look at the point Paul makes, the first point Paul makes. And now we're, we're finding ourselves in verse 4 here of Romans chapter 2. Paul says this. Let's start with God, Paul says. God is a God who is rich in goodness and forbearance and patience or long-suffering towards everyone. God is good to everyone. God is forbearing to everyone. God is long-suffering. God is patient to everyone. Let's look at these three words here for a second. The goodness of God is God's readiness and willingness to give us advantages in life. As parents, you're good to your children. You try to find just the right school clothes for them to send them off to school. You try to help them with their homework because you want them to be successful. You put a band-aid on their owies when they fall down. You give them advice and counsel on how it is they can get by in this world. You feed them and you do different things. And really what you want is there's something within you because they're an extension of yourself. You want them to be successful. And God has made us. And God has created us. God takes ownership of his creation and he wants us to succeed. He wants us to do well in life. And so God does this for him. He's good to all. He seeks the advantages of all. And this is seen in the common graces that come to all people. And graces that you receive every single day that you cannot number. I mean, if we were to take time here, this isn't a classroom. If I asked you to think of common graces, you would exhaust yourself. What is the common grace in your life that makes you particularly thankful? And if you thought about it, you go, how could I identify one? If you really were thinking, there's so many. It's like a person asks me, why do you love your wife? What's the one reason why you love your wife? The one reason I couldn't exhaust today thinking of all the reasons why I love my wife. How do I love the... Let me count the ways? Not possible. Can't count the ways. What are the common graces of your life? Not possible to number them. Uh, let's just start with taste buds. I'm glad we've got them, right? They're good things. The ability to see color. I like that too. Having depth perception comes in handy every once in a while, especially when something's being thrown at you. And these are common graces in life, and they're more. They just compound and compound and compound, and you live in the benefit of, of a world that is not in chaos because God governs us, and he sends our way graces day in and day out. Saying that God is good, that he's rich in goodness, is another way of saying God is rich in grace, and the reason why we say that is because you don't deserve them. We don't. Paul has just said that the moralist is inexcusable in his guilt. He's just said that he will not escape the righteous judgment of God if he continues in his moralistic ways. And then God tells the moralist, God is good to you. He's rich in goodness towards you. Now what does that mean? You don't deserve it. But he still is rich in goodness to you. He gives you things that you don't deserve and I'm just going to suggest to you that that's the case with you as well. The Rich man can't say, well, see how good my life is? That means I'm a good person. Ah, you're getting what you don't deserve. God is just good towards you. And so this man does not deserve these good things from God. It's God giving him or her what is not deserved. And that is, by the way, the essence of what grace is. God gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us 
good things. And he is full of, rich with goodness. He is rich with grace towards us. Next thing he says is he's rich in forbearance. The word here is a picture of a God who holds up the burden of a fallen world and keeps the worst of the fallen world of what we even would bring upon ourselves and what we deserve from coming falling and raining down upon our heads. So, not only do we not deserve the good things we experience, but it's showing us here that God forbears. He bears with or restrains the evil that we would bring upon our lives because of our own selfishness and because of our choices. There are things that take place. When I was a kid, I was sometimes, oftentimes, actually waiting for the other foot to fall, right? I had a bit of a tender conscience. And so, you know, I knew I did things I shouldn't do, and I was waiting for my comeuppance. And I have to tell you the truth, most of the time, it didn't come. It just came often enough that I kept waiting for it to come. When I was a little boy, I don't know what it was that I did that was wrong, or what my parents, I don't think it's anything my parents taught me, but when I was really little, if I ever heard a siren or saw a police car, I would, we would be driving around the streets, I would lay out on the bottom of the car. I was sure they were coming to get me, you know. It was probably my siblings who had ground that into my mind, you know, that I was just a naughty little boy, and I'd believe them, but it goes on with our lives, actually. We prove it out. We do things that are wrong. We do things that are selfish. We do things that we shouldn't do, and we think, oh, you know, I, if you really think about it, I'm waiting for that backlash to come upon me. And so often it doesn't come. And the reason is God is restraining. God is forbearing so that we don't encounter the full onslaught of what we would bring upon ourselves. We'll see this a little bit more as we go further and further in the book of Romans. But let me take you to a passage of scripture that describes the state of the world today. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to read to you verses 6 and 7. I'll just give you a little bit of background. The people think in the book of Thessalonians that Paul's writing to, think that they have come to the end of days, that they've come to the time in which the Antichrist is going to be revealed and he's going to wreak his havoc on the earth. Maybe they're looking at someone like Nero and they're saying, Nero's the Antichrist and it's broke out upon us. Paul is writing to them to tell them, now that's not what's taking place right now. This man, this Antichrist, which he calls the man of lawlessness, in the last days when there's this horrific judgment that comes upon the world, It's not happened yet because there's something in place that's keeping that from happening. And he writes in verses 6 and 7 what it is that's taking place. He says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Just let you know that... The lawless one, the Antichrist, has not been revealed. You're not in the throes of the end time and the final judgment and the wrath of the last days. You're not in the middle of all that because there's someone who's restraining and he's putting a restraint on all these things. And before this outcome takes place, you read the book of Revelation and you read the description of all the horrible things that will take place and all the plagues that will come upon the earth. Before that takes place, there's a restraint that's going to be removed. And I understand that restraint to be the Holy Spirit. God himself, the spirit of God that's restraining and holding back the impulses of evil that are in the midst of our world and in our own human hearts. It's like he's suppressing a volcanic eruption and yet we ignore him and we don't respond to him and there's day coming when God will unleash upon us his judgment and his judgment will be that he'll just merely stop restraining the evil potential in us all. And there'll be an explosion and eruption 
judgment because we'll be left to ourselves. But here's what God is doing right now. The very worst that you're capable of doing, God has set all kinds of restraints around you. He gives you social restraints. He gives you the restraint of your own conscience. He gives you the strength of the culture and the society that you live in. And then on top of that, he, he holds it down by his own power and his own spirit, restraining those things. So you don't experience the worst of things. And in the midst of that, damning back all of that, he, he lets pour out to you daily goodness in your life. So what is that? What is forbearance? If goodness and the stream of goodness is grace, what is forbearance? It's mercy. You're not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And God in forbearance is holding back from you, getting what you do deserve. This is not just the consequences of your own actions interacting with the evil of this world and it just ramping up and getting worse and worse, but there's also that God forbears in his judgment against us. God forbears in his own righteous judgment against us. The Bible says there's the coming a day in which we'll stand before the righteous judge. That's what Paul will say here in verse 5. But God is forbearing in that. He's holding it back. It's like he's restraining his justice from falling upon us. And as he forbears, instead, God is pouring out upon us goodness. And God is pouring out upon us grace. And an expression of his desire to bring us to his mercy and to his forgiveness. The next thing it says he's long-suffering. And basically that just means that God endures in this position. God endures in this disposition towards his creatures and towards us. He endures in goodness. He's good to all. His tender mercies are over all. See that? Good, gracious to all, merciful to all. He endures in this. He suffers in the midst of this while individuals ignore him and mock him and deny his truth and turn from him. And yet in all of it, God endures because he longs to bring us all to his salvation. Second Peter verses 3-9 explains what is God's heart and God's mind as he endures in his goodness towards us and he endures in his forbearing or holding back from us the full onslaught of what we deserve. There it says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. And by the way, the promise, right, God is going to come back and judge the earth. Where is that taking place? Because he's also promised that, right? There is going to be a day of judgment. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. He's enduringly patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that brings us to the second point in Paul's argument to the moralist who says, oh, all these good things that are happening in my life is proof that I'm in a good situation. He says, no, that just proves that God is gracious and that God is merciful. That's all. It doesn't prove that you've done anything right. It doesn't prove that you're in a positive relationship with God where you've earned your salvation by being just a little bit better than somebody else that you're judging. No. It just shows that God is good to you like he's good to everyone and God is merciful to you like he's merciful to everyone. And, and then he explains the reason for God behaving in this way or acting this way towards them. The second thing he says is God has a reason for all this. God designs that his goodness, his graciousness, and his mercy would lead people to repent and turn to him. Repentance is just turning away from your sin and your own selfish pursuits and your own self-salvation. It's to turn to God and see that he was pursuing you and wants you and that he wants to save you and he wants to redeem you, and he wants to give you a righteousness that is 
deep and lasting and eternal that comes from self as a gift. And God is gracious and good to you, constantly good to you. God is merciful, forbearing and holding back the worst upon you in order that you might in all these things be drawn to him and turn to him. He's doing this out of his love for you. He is patiently stirring and coaxing and leading people to turn to him through his goodness. Might we see this? That the purpose of all the common graces in your life, taste buds, color for your vision, order in your world, enjoyment in relationships, whatever it is, that they are all expressions of God's desire to bring you to himself, that this goodness of God is not indiscriminate, and it's not, it's not like God just said, let's just be good to everybody, without any purpose or design, that God's goodness was intentional and purpose and designed to set upon the heart of every individual in order to turn him away from himself and turn him in repentance completely upon God. God is... By the way, not deploying a useless strategy here. He knows what he's doing. The person who truly counts the benefits of God. Listen to this. The person who truly counts the benefits of God towards their life. And they count them not as a deserved payoff for their good deeds or commendable life. But as an undeserved grace. And in the place of great deserved judgment from God. A God who has long been patient in acting this way towards them. The person who sees it in this way and begins to see the goodness of God in this way. When they honestly consider the benefits of their life in this way, they're on their way. They're on their way to repenting and turning and yielding their life to God. When you recognize and see it in that way, oh, this is from God and I don't deserve it. Oh, this is from God and I deserve something worse. And God has been doing this all throughout my life. And you're willing to reach that conclusion and see those things. You're on your way to turning from yourself and turning to Him. The motivating factor, a spring from which repentance rises in our life is gratitude. That's why in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is describing the descent of a society into moral decay, it says not only they knew God in verse 21, but they weren't thankful, they weren't grateful. It's gratitude that turns us into full repentance to God. It's the spring that authors, you might say, this repentance that turns completely from ourselves and our own devices to just believe and trust in what God has promised to give us in himself and to receive it. And so this is the point that's being made. This is the idea. Think about that. God loves you. God loves my neighbor. God loves the person that I have identified as being in the wretched state of ultimate decay because of their moral failures. And God is good to them. God is good to them, just like he's good to me. And God is restraining judgment upon them, as he does with me. And God does all of that because he wants them to turn into him. And you know why he does it to me? Because he wants the same thing. He wants the same thing. You know the essence of the Christian life is? A Christian is, the Puritans used to say this of the Christian. They had a name for a Christian. A Christian was a repenter. He was a repenter. It wasn't a bad word to them. It wasn't a person that was beating their breast and just saying, ah, oh, I'm just a miserable person and self-flagellating themselves. It was just a person who turned from their own selfish impulses 
to a God who loved them and wanted to selflessly give his life to them. They were repenters who turned from self into God. Here's the third thing that Paul now says in the argument. He wants the moralist to understand. He tells the moralists, you think that you've been adding up all these good things in your life to prove that you're a good person right with God, but in reality, this is what's been taking place. You have been depreciating or undervaluing, deprecating the grace and mercy and long-suffering of God. God has richly been pouring goodness upon you. God has richly been pouring out his forbearance and his mercy upon you. God has richly been surrounding you with the enduring expressions of his patience or long-suffering with you, and you've ignored it. You've discounted it. That's what it means when it says you've despised. The word despised means you've undervalued it. This isn't worth very much. You know what's worth a lot? My good deeds. My moral superiority. That's the currency that I'll buy heaven with. How good I am. And the whole time you've been devaluing what God has been richly pouring out upon your life. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. In a sense, what's going on here is you've been snubbing the goodness of God while you've been willing to enjoy the benefits of God's grace and God's mercy and even declare that it proves your own moral superiority. You've actually been willfully ignorant of. You have been willfully not willing to reason out and understand its design. It says there in verse 5, not knowing that God's goodness leads to repentance. And what we need to understand here is he's not saying completely ignorant, not having a clue. That's not what he's saying. Because just prior to this, he said they suppress the truth and unrighteousness in verse 18 of chapter 1. Then he starts by describing this. You've been despising or undervaluing the richness of the goodness and forbearance and the patience of God. And so not knowing is a descriptor for those two behaviors. In other words, what he's basically saying is you've been willfully ignorant. You have put out of your mind. You've not been willing to consider what God has been doing all along in your life. You've been suppressing his goodness towards you. It's the outcome of devaluing and depreciating and snubbing the goodness of God. I see that too as well. God is good and God is rich. And people grumble. They don't understand how good God has been to them. When they do find and identify the goodness, you know what their conclusion is? I must be a good person. <laughs> I'm better than that guy because look how good my life is. And oh, They're not understanding. If they only were thankful and grateful, they would turn to God and away from themselves. See, oh, God is not validating me. God is inviting me. God is wooing me to himself. Again, we see this all over the place. I want to look outside the world and see this in the world around me, but the fact is I can look in my own life and see it in my own life. How often it is for me to bypass gratitude and thankfulness, and complain instead when God has been so good to us. And then you look at the world around you and you see them taking hold of and gaining and capturing something, some expression of God's goodness and, and celebrating it, but then applying it in a way that doesn't add up to what God was doing. Some years ago, there was a documentary on how people sang the song Amazing Grace. That's a tremendous song. You know, it's sung at, or played, you know, with a bagpipe at almost, you know, half of the funerals nowadays, right? Wonderful words, profound words, and the people are singing them, and you realize they're singing it as kind of a sentimental meditation of a good life, but they're not paying attention to the words. 
They're not even really considering and trying to understand what it's saying. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. What does all that mean? It means I wasn't deserving. Grace means I'm not deserving of these things. It means that I deserve God's judgment. And God forbore with me. And God was calling me to turn and repent to him. Ask people as they sing this song if that's what they get out of it. They don't. You know why? They want to sing the tune of goodness. They want to live under the sound of goodness and benefit from the goodness. But they don't really want to understand. They don't want to understand what's calling from their lives. The invitation that's there. Paul says the result of that. Because you're cataloging all these things to substantiate your own goodness, you're actually not gathering up and collecting the riches of God's grace for your life, but instead what you're storing up is greater and greater judgment from God. That's his fourth point. You're establishing a greater and greater judgment for yourself because you're not turning to God in the midst of his goodness. You're not following where it is trying to lead you and There's going to be a final day, he says, that's going to come when everyone is going to be forced to stand before God as judge. And at that time, they'll see that they're not righteous. That it wasn't an indication of how good they were. And they'll discover that God is absolutely righteous in all of his judgments. That great reservoir of blessing that's come your way as a steady stream. Behind that river of goodness that was flowing to you was a dam of judgment that you deserved that was held back from you. And you were willing to live your life receiving God's goodness and his grace to sustain you and go with you. And then you told yourself it's because you were a good person and you never turned to him and you denied him. And Paul is saying, one day, listen, the dam is going to break and you're going to be swept away in judgment. You moralist, who think you're good by your own moral behavior and better than others, you're in need of his salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord Jesus himself and by believing in him. Here's our application. It's very quick. Let God's goodness in your life take you to the right place. Let God's mercy in your life take you to the right place. Away from yourself, away from your own sinful pursuits, to him and his life and his satisfaction, and his cleansing, and an unending relationship with him. You don't deserve all that God has done for you. He's loved you with great patience. Now turn to him. Do an about face from yourself, and fall on him for your salvation in your life. And here's one other application. Praise such a righteous and good God. Praise such a righteous and good God. A God whose impulse is to constrain people to come to Him and who constrains them or calls them with goodness, with mercy, with patience. He does this very patiently. What a good God. He doesn't drive us to Him with the lash. He lures us to Him with love. What a good and merciful God. Let's bow our heads. And with the psalmist we say, 
God is good to all and his tender mercies are over all. Dear God, teach us. Teach us daily to survey our lives in the midst of the challenges, in the face of hardships. Help us to see how you are reaching us and seeking us and seeking to gain our hearts by your goodness. Lord, we thank you for other words that you've said to describe the same thing. You told your people in Israel that you had loved them with an everlasting love and therefore you had drawn them with loving kindness. You wanted them to understand that even the hard things in their life were designed to turn them to you in the arms of your infinite, unending love and grace. Nothing. Not even this callousness. Not even this suppressing and pushing you out of our lives has, has brought us to the end of your patience. Right now in this moment. You still, you still patiently love. You still patiently call us in your goodness and mercy. Oh, while you're still calling, may we answer you, we pray. In Jesus' name.